Amen. That was really powerful, Steve and Tammy. Thank you for that. Um, it was a joy to uh, play a little guitar this morning with our fearless leader, Josiah. Um, I keep coming back to Psalm 84. You know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord uh, than anywhere else. Um, it's to be in his presence, to worship him, to glorify him with all that we are. And this morning, we're actually going to get into a final story in the life of David, uh, the great psalmist of Scripture, the great musician of Scripture, as we reflect on our story. Uh, this is a climax for our, our story campaign. Remember, we've been for five weeks casting the vision. Uh, we've been talking about what this is really about. We've said this is bigger than a project. It's bigger than a renovation. And yet, isn't it interesting that God, in his grand purposes, sometimes challenges us to give care and attention to the materiality of things so that we can further invest in his mission. Um, as I think about this, I want to frame this through the idea that we are in a spiritual milestone moment as a church. Okay, well, how do you do that? How do you walk through a milestone together? I want to read the words of Teddy Roosevelt to you. He gave a speech in April 23rd, 1910. Uh, the speech is sometimes referred to as the man in the arena. And I'm reading an excerpt that made the speech famous. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievements? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails daring greatly. I love that. And as I think about what he's saying here, it makes me think about the life of King David. Here is a man who entered the arena. And he did so as a young man, a shepherd boy. And a man who experienced great devotions and great enthusiasms, in fact, God himself said, this is a man after my own heart. And of course, he had shortcomings. But when we think about the life of David, certainly we remember those shortcomings, but we do not emphasize the shortcomings because David was a man who left everything in the arena. He dared greatly for the purposes of God. I want to get into his last dream this morning with you. We're in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. If you know the story, David has had a bold vision. He's building himself a house, and, and it's a place that will be forever memorialized in the nation of Israel as a place where the king resides. It will show 
the strength of the nation and what God's done in the nation. But as he's completing this project, he comes to the realization that I'm living in a house and my God is dwelling in a tent. So he starts thinking about a house for God, a palace where God himself would reside. It would be a place where all the nations surrounding Israel could come and they could meet this glorious God that David has come to know throughout a lifetime. It would be a place that would protect the future so that the worship of Israel would be centralized and people would love God rightly. And so David has plans. But you know how God is. Uh, even our biggest visions, God says, no, those aren't big enough. They're not good enough. My dreams are always bigger than your dreams. So he talks to David and he tells him, and David's recounting this in First Chronicles 28. He says, David says, here are my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building, but God said, you may not build a house for my name. Why? For you are a man of war and have shed blood. And I want this place to be something really special. So I'm going to leave the task of building it to your son Solomon. Now, does this mean that David is sidelined in this great project? Of course not. In 1 Chronicles 29, where we're going to be looking this morning, David says what's on his heart. Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord. So two things David is recognizing here. One, the experience of Solomon. And two, that this task is in this space where it's going to require faith. It's a great task. In other words, unless God shows up, this feels impossible for me. How can we achieve this? Well, these are the moments that I believe that God puts us into when we come into a spiritual milestone moment. The moments where we are called as a people of God to dare greatly for the future. In fact, it's interesting when you look at scripture that these moments don't come often. There are only two times that I'm aware of in the Old Testament where there is a capital project, at least up to this point in biblical history. You have the building of the tabernacle and now a house for God, a place where God's glory would dwell, where the worship of Israel would be centralized. And you can imagine with something like this that occurs so infrequently how the questions pile up. Can we do this? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to do this? Well, David gives us a very beautiful model in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. He begins by saying, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So here's the model. The king gives, then all the leaders follow, and then the people of God respond. Now, let's appreciate the magnitude of this for a minute. 
the giving that's described to us in First Chronicle 29, which is it's really hard to measure because we really can't compare the worth of things today to the worth of things then, and yet we do know the amounts of things that they're giving. Uh, if you were to kind of translate the amount of gold that David gave back then to what the value of gold is today, he gave, get this, six billion dollars worth of gold. The leaders who come after him, 10 billion dollars of gold. Uh, he takes from the treasury, uh, the gold, the silver, the precious resources, 210 billion dollars worth, if we were to put it in today's standards. Okay, well, again, I don't know how to do all the math on that. The only thing I can say is that David gave a lot of money. He was, as one pastor put it, God's ATM. <laughs> Here's this last dream. He's dispersing God's money for God's purposes. He's challenging people into a commitment. If you look at verse 5, he says, Who will follow my example and give an offering today to the Lord? Well, the people come forward. And I want you to notice something about the gift as they're coming forward. They describe it after the people gave. It says that the people rejoiced over the offerings. And then it says two things to us. Look at this. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And King David was filled with joy. So this is the nature of this gift that we're talking about this morning. In scripture, it's called a Free will offering. Free means that you're not doing this for pressure. You shouldn't feel pressured this morning. I don't want anyone feeling pressured this morning. Wholeheartedly means that this is from the heart. There's no limit to it. Uh, it's not a 10% tithe kind of thing. This is what God has laid on my heart as I've prayed about this initiative. Now, imagine if you had like a news media back then. How would they report all of these events? What would they be highlighting? Well, I think, you know, as they describe all of this, they would be like, oh, we must be in a really bullish economy right now. People are just giving so much money. They must just have excess resources to give to the work of God. And look at King David, the greatest king that Israel will ever know. He's a charismatic, visionary leader. And how inspiring are all the leaders around him who are giving by example. They have the moral authority. And then you would see the king camera panning in on the future site of the temple, and they will say things like, oh, if we just gave generously into this project, then one day this glorious building that David has conceived of will be on this plot of land. Now, here's the thing. The news media, if they reported it that way, would have gotten it all wrong. They would miss what was really happening underneath the surface and why the people are responding in the way that they are. But David doesn't miss it. He gets right to the heart of it through this beautiful prayer that we see in the text. Look with me. We're at verses 14 through 20, and this is David's prayer. But who am I 
And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? Like, we get to do this. There's nothing special about us. So then what's special? For all things come from you. And of your own have we given you, for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And I know I've seen your people who are present here offer freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. So what do we learn from David's prayer about moments like this, these moments that seldomly come, these moments where we must dare greatly for the future? Well, first... I want you to see that everything is a gift. For all things come from you. It's a basic truth. And this truth will either animate your life or you will totally overlook it and you will derive no power and strength in your life from the reality that everything that you possess in this world is a gift. It was given to you by one who is greater than you. Your life is a gift. Your health is a gift. Your career is a gift. Your intelligence is a gift. Your strength, your children, your family, your friendships, your accomplishments, your wealth. Everything that we are as a people flows out of the reality that we worship a great giver of gifts. And James, the apostle, was reflecting on the goodness of God, and he says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from God our Father, who created all the lights in heaven. So giving is an overflow of the heart that is responding to the goodness and kindness of God. Uh, Pastor James had a Really fun interaction this week. A member had called him, and as they were talking through their commitment card, the member was just like, you know, I was reflecting on my life as I was looking at this card, and I was just thinking about all the times that life got challenging and difficult and hard. And then I'm looking at my R story number, and I came to the realization, God has been so good to me that I would be able to give this gift. I mean, that's a great realization. I, I read this recently that at our very fundamental nature, humans are meant to be givers of gifts. 
Because if we want to be anything like the God of heaven who literally gave us everything, if we want to be image bearers of him, then of course we would be gift givers too. But here's a question. You ready for this one? How do you give God a gift? I mean, for crying out loud, we got Psalm 50, right? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need anything. So what do I give to him that he possibly already does not have from me? I think we looked at it actually a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 12. Do you remember the story of Mary and how she had offered to Jesus the most priceless thing that she owned? It was a jar of perfume made out of pure nard essence. And so she lays this down at Jesus' feet. And as you read the whole passage of scripture, I think there's only one word that rightly describes what's going on there. And the word is worship. Okay, our mission statement, worship, transformation, mission, it begins with this idea of worship. You cannot describe Mary's encounter with Jesus through words like obligation or religion or duty. The only word that rightly describes what's going on in John 12 is worship. Now think about this with God and worship. In the scriptures, the first act of worship is not a Bible study. It's not preaching. It's not singing. It's not prayer. It's giving. You have Cain and Abel, and they're both bringing their gifts to God, and God rejects one gift. He rejects Cain's gift, and he accepts Abel's gift. Now, as we're reading this, as we're first making our way through the Bible, we're like, what is happening here? Is God like arbitrary? Why would he pick Abel's gift and reject Cain's gift? And the conclusion that I've arrived at as I've studied that passage is this, is that God wants your best. The only kind of gift that's fitting to give to God is a gift that represents your best in some way. Well, how do I know what my best is? It's kind of one of those things that's relative, right? Because David, for him to give his best, he had to give a king-sized gift. But other people that were there in this moment of celebratory worship, they didn't have like six billion of gold. They had something different. I think the best is something that you know it when you see it. Uh, I told this story recently, but it bears repeating. Uh, Paul Harvey was called by a turkey company once, and he was told about a woman who had called into the company and was asking, is this turkey at the bottom of my deep freeze safe for human consumption? It had been in there for a while. She couldn't remember how long it had been in there, so she's calling them up. She doesn't want to let it go to waste. So here's what they do. They look at, like, the details of, you know, the barcode that's on the turkey. They triangulate the reality that that turkey has been sitting at the bottom of that freezer for 20 years. Okay. She's like, well, I still don't want it to go to waste. Is it safe for me to eat it? So they say very reluctantly, 
Well, I, I guess if you are 100% certain over 20 years that you've never had like a power outage or anything like that, that the turkey's never thawed, I guess you could eat it. Are you 100% certain? Well, the woman starts thinking and she's like, you know, I really don't think that it's ever thawed over 20 years, but... Now that you put it like that, I think I'm going to play it safe. I'll just give the turkey to my church. <laughs> you ever, like, thought about why God defines what kind of gifts he's looking for in Scripture, where he says things like first fruits, best lambs. He's not like, you know, in the book of Malachi, they get really ingenuitive and they say, oh, we'll just give God the sick ones because, you know, no one's going to eat those anyways. God is not looking for your toxic turkeys, <laughs> right? Why? Devotion. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. God knows something about us. He knows that you could give a gift without heart. You could give a toxic turkey. You could give a sickly lamb. You could be Cain and give maybe your second or third or fourth best. But you cannot fake sacrifice. 100% of the time, if I'm giving something that feels like I've hit that pain point now, I know I've entered into sacred space with my giving, and God delights in that because when you enter into that space, he knows that you have transitioned from being a lover of money to loving him. He is your reward. He is your joy. He is one worth great sacrifice. Let's think of one more point before we respond with our gifts. David says something very profound as he's praying. He notes that everything is temporary. And I want to read this to you from the New Living Translation. This is verse 15. He says, We are here for only a moment. Visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. You know, in just a moment, we're going to come and we're going to lay gifts here. It's our commitment cards. It's telling our story. But you need to know something as you're laying gifts here. I've gone to the site where Solomon's temple once lie. Um, it's in the city of Jerusalem called the Western Wall. And you can actually go to this space and you can see some of the original stones but what is so profoundly obvious is when you enter into this space, all of that treasure, gold, silver, love, sacrifice, some 2,500 years ago, it all just kind of like went because of a Babylonian captivity. And here's the truth. Like when we give to something like this in a spiritual milestone, um, as we talk about what the building's gonna look like, as we think about the front-facing facade, as we think about redesigning the interior. 
it might last 100 years. There's this thing called obsolescence that happens along the way. Things are actually going to degrade on us. We're never going to give to the materiality of something and have it last forever. That's just not how this world works. So why do we do it? Well, if we're doing it because we want immortality through bricks and mortar, we're wrong. (laughs) This renovation program was never ultimately about a building, and it was never ultimately about money. Those were all secondary means so that we could effectively tell our story. Just think about this. This building is a tool, but you, the precious people of God, are invaluable. This building is going to degrade and deteriorate and one day might be dust. But you are immortal. You are going to outlive the very stars in the universe. And so that is why this mission that God has put on our heart as a church is everything. We've got to care about our community. Love thrives in specificity. We've got to be a church that builds into the family framework, thick community, dense relationships, spiritual growth through exercising the spiritual gifts in one another's lives. We've got to care about the next generation. All of these things, our community, our family, our future is why we're doing this. Now, the reoccurring question, and I I began with this, has been, can we do this? Hmm. That's a good question. Is it possible? I was thinking about the Chicago Cubs as I was thinking about that question, actually. I'm originally from Chicago, and if you know anything about the Cubs, uh, they went through a pretty long season of drought in their history as a baseball team. Uh, Harry Carey, you all remember Harry Carey? He was a beloved guy. Um, he was once reminded of the reality that the Cubs had not won a World Series since 1908. And Harry Carey's response was, any team can have a bad century. <laughs> I like that. Well, when a new manager was coming on to the Cubs, his name was uh, Dusty Baker. This is in the 90s. Uh, Once again, reminded of the history of the Cubs. And so he spoke out on behalf of Cubby Nation. And when they're asked, well, what are you guys going to do? What's going to be different? He looked back, and instead of answering the question, can we do it? He said, why not us? So let me say that same question to you. Why not us? Why not us? Why not now? Why not here? And if it's not us, then who? And if it's not now, then when? And if it's not here, then where? You see, I believe that today begins our time to enter into the arena. To be like King David, to be like previous generations of OBCers to dare greatly for the future that God has for this church. It's our time to tell our story. This is a special moment. Pastor James, as he was talking about this moment, he said, listen, 
We don't come up and walk gifts forward as a church. That is not a part of our normal practice. Well, guess what? This isn't a normal moment. It's not. But we do come forward for things, don't we? Uh, we want to see people come forward when they're making decisions for Christ, when they're recommitting their lives. We love seeing people come forward for missionary callings. So why th not this? Why not now? Why not here? You know, as I think about this, the reason we come forward is because if we're going to do this, we've got to do it together. This isn't one of those moments where I can kind of independently, invisibly, individually accomplish something. This is like everybody, if you feel led, this is one of those kind of moments. So let me tell you what we're going to do. Josiah is actually going to come forward right now. And as he's coming forward, the first thing is I want to just give us a moment where we're prayerfully looking at those commitment cards again. If you've already turned in a card, please do it again. Again, we're doing this together. Just write copy on your card and turn it in with us. Uh, if you're looking at your card and you've turned in one and you think the number's different now, write change on your card, turn it in. But prayerfully in a moment, examine your card, fill it out, whatever it is that God has on your heart, and ask him, what would you have us do? After that, you're going to see that the elders and staff will be coming forward, and then I'm going to be inviting a general appeal. So here's my prayer. God, speak to us in this moment. So you reflect in your heart.